November 24, 2013, lecture discussion number 133 on the Book of Romans. So once again, those of you on the Internet, uh, if you are just catching us for the first time, there's 132 lectures on this particular subject prior to today. So that's over two years now. Before I start lecture number 133, I just wanted to mention very quickly, I, I pay attention to what's happening again in, uh, in Israel. We have, uh, as you know, we have the Ezekiel um, 38 developing over there. We have that final, not final, but we have the battle of the Confederacy from the north uh, that a sooner or later will, will uh, form and will attack Israel and will be supernaturally destroyed. But in, in a way that the, the world probably won't notice it, but Israel will notice that it is a supernatural event. And that's going to change them as a nation. But Iran... Uh, key element of that is um, is negotiating and has negotiated apparently with the United States um, to maintain their enrich- enrichment capability. They're going to develop a nuclear weapon and when they get it, what are they going to do with it? They're going to try to send it at Israel and destroy them. It is the goal of the Islamic world to destroy that nation. And Israel knows it. Uh, and so we are in a facade uh, agreement where we, uh, the United States, loosens its uh, its sanctions against the Israel or Iran. I'm sorry, and Iran then has the ability to go out and purchase things that it can use eventually as a weapon system. Israel knows that Israel will event it will it will have to attack first. And Netanyahu um, believes um, that he is the man um, personally assigned to this task, and I think he's probably correct. So watch that. If that uh, if that happens, wow, that's an event of a lifetime for us. So why, uh, pay attention to the news out of Israel. Okay, back we go now. November 24th, I'll repeat it, 2013, lecture discussion number 133 on the Book of Romans. Well, <coughs> excuse me, believe it or not, before beginning uh, our current little sojourn into Psalm 22, which as you know now, I hope you know, you should know, and I'm going to beat it into you if you don't know, that is the mystery of the hind of the morning. Psalm 22 is the mystery of the hind of the morning. Or, or if you will, if you wish to produce it this way, why did Christ, using a deafening voice, it is the, the second one, I'm sorry, the first of the two loud voices from the cross, this incredibly loud, deafening scream, for lack of a better description. Why did Christ scream out the first words of the song, the hind of the morning? The first verse of Psalm 22. Why did he do it? It's his fourth of the seven sayings. Because the hind of the morning, as you know, is a complaint against the character of a God. It's an accusation. It's charges leveled against God's character. Why would Christ do that? He, in fact, is the second person of the triune Godhead. He would know the complaint is unjustified and wrong, untrue. So why would he do it? It is something that the hindmost of the dawn does, and Christ does not and is not, he does not fulfill the Characteristics, and he is not the hindmost of the dawn or the hind of the morning. And before I begin to address that very, very rambled, complex question, uh, before I started looking at it, I knew that was the question. I made a list, and I said, "Okay, I got to get all of this stuff on this list done in order for people to answer that that question that I just asked you." 
I know how much it would take. So I'm going to put the list of things that you have to, in order to answer the question, why Christ quotes Psalm 22.1, which you will always hear as, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is true, but it is not said by God himself. It is said by the hind of the morning. Why did he quote it? In order to solve that, in no particular order, this is what you have to do. First, though, I will say to you that uh, Zechariah 12.10 is critical. They're all critical. First Kings 13, which is where we are kind of today. Hebrews 13.5 which comes from Deuteronomy 31.6, where God says clearly, I will never, never, ever forsake you. It's impossible. He not only won't forsake you, he will never say that it's possible that he could, which immediately eliminates Psalm 22.1 as something that God would say about himself. Okay? Second Chronicles 34. Notice I just abbreviate it like that. Yes, somebody laughed. Thank you. And 35. 2 Kings 22 and 23. That's Josiah, right? The worm and the poisonous plant of Jonah. The peg of Isaiah. Uh... over here because I can't bend over anymore. Matthew 4. Matthew 4. It's hard to write Matthew 4 without, sorry, excuse me, without writing Genesis 15. They are almost one and the same. The topic is identical. Hosea 13, 2, and 14, 2. <sighs> Second Samuel uh, 24. That's the three choices of David. He has three decisions that he can make, exactly as Adam had three that he could also make. Exodus 32, which is the golden calf, right? And Acts 2.41, which is the 3,000 saved versus the 3,000 slain. That, that compliment that's going on there. Luke 22.48, First Timothy 2.14, that is where... Through 15, that is where Adam is not deceived. Zechariah 11, 17, of course, is the withered arm of the Antichrist. Genesis 2, 17, which is don't eat from that tree, of course. And then 2 Kings 1, 2 Kings, I'd say all the way to 2 Kings 7, which, uh, which is Elijah, Elisha typology the axe head, the omniscience of Elisha, and all of that. So that is what you need. In order to answer the question, why did he quote Psalm 22.1, you have to have a working understanding of all of that. If you've got that, you'll never again have any issues with why he said what he said. It had nothing to do with him being forsaken. It's impossible to forsake the omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent God, and that is who Christ is on the cross. That's the first, that's why this one's so important. That's the first thing you learn in this list. 
Because Christ says definitively, God says definitively, that is me on the cross. Once you've got that, then the rest of it begins to fall into place for you. And hopefully, again, I kind of went through them really quickly, but I, I want you to recognize what those passages contain and the evidence that they provide. Everything that is necessary in order to prove, to explain, to answer the question of this fourth saying of Christ on the cross. Uh, again, why did, did the God, why does God in the flesh quote Psalm 22-1? Of any verse in the Bible, he quotes the first verse or the complaint or the accusation that is made by the hind of the morning. That is, as you know, the title of Psalm 22. And obviously I've been blasting away at this uh, over the past weeks. Because I firmly believe uh, that um, the Christ-honoring solution that's given in Scripture, there it is, is gone now. It's not taught anymore. It's just gone. And I need you to know at least that there is one. Maybe you don't get it completely, but you need to know it exists. There it is. And I'm also, I'm convinced that all of you, internet included, can not only figure it out, but you can understand it, and you can explain it to others. I believe it's critical that you do so, especially to your kids. But if all that I accomplish is that you are made aware that a Christ-honoring answer exists, at least, and therefore the Christ-dishonoring blasphemy that passes for scholarship today that's so common today uh, so that you understand that it cannot stand any scrutiny at all. Uh, this is going to sound arrogant, and I don't wish to do that, but it's really the truth. It, it isn't me. It's that it's just the task is so simple. I can take the common view, the Christ dishonoring view, that uh, he quotes Psalm 22.1 because he feels abandoned by himself. I can't even say that, that view without uh, grabbing my face. I told somebody the other day uh, I couldn't come to the phone because I was washing my face. Or actually, Lori did. She said he can't come to the phone. He's washing his face. And and then she looked. It didn't change anything. And that's <laughs> that's sadly the case. But I, I grab my every time I hear somebody say that Psalm twenty two one is about himself then why doesn't he say, myself, myself, why have I forsaken myself? He would do that, and that's absurd. That view can be so easily destroyed with so little effort. Every time I'm asked to present the alternative to that view, and I haven't done it for many, many years, but every debate I've ever had on Psalm 22.1, it's so overwhelming and it isn't me that does it. It's, it's the actual truth. I have the truth. The other position is ludicrous. But yet it is overwhelmingly presented today. So I just want you to, to know that it, uh, if all I accomplish is that you know that the common view that's taught cannot handle this. It's not defensible, there, that position. This one is the real one. That's all I can do, and that's be happy. I'll be happy with that. But you, you it, it, just to pick out some, Zechariah 12.10, very, very important. Here is the typology of Josiah. Boy, once you've got Josiah, his two chariots and the fact that he is named, it is me 
it is me on the cross. That's what he says. Thus says the Lord God, it's me on the cross. Zechariah 12.10. You'll read that and you'll figure that's exactly what he's saying. Here's the typology of Josiah, his two chariots, his disguise. The fact that he's disguised is very, very important. That teaches you that Christ is also disguised on the cross. The worm of Jonah. Wow. Understanding that the worm attaches itself to the wooden cross. Understanding that the worm um, dies and out comes a red fluid that gives life to its offspring. Uh, understanding the poisonous plant that, that jo- Jonah loves so much, and, and the worm um, that kills that poisonous plant. And then the unnamed prophet, 1 Kings 13, the one that names Josiah, critically important. And then the identifying of Jeroboam, I didn't put it on my list, but that's also 1 Kings 13. The identifying of Jeroboam by by the withered hand teaches you about the cross. Now, I, I always like to throw in... Um, Elisha, and then Adam, because neither one were deceived. Elisha has an omniscience factor to him. Uh, Adam, not deceived. Elisha, knowing the thoughts and words of those seeking to kill him. And, of course, Elisha's axe head. He floats an axe head. Dave and I talk about this all the time. And um, supper day for those of you on the Internet. Elisha floats, a, floats a, a, an axe head, and at the very end of that event, he says, now reach down and pick it up. And you begin to understand the axe head is a type or a picture of your soul that is lost in death. And he floats it back up by throwing Christ into the Jordan River. The branch floats the life of, the, of each of us back up. But Elisha, as a type of Christ, says, reach down and pick, up, pick it up. That powerful things in the Bible. Okay, but if you get all of that, then the truth of Christ on the cross suddenly appears. And now you understand why he uh, says what he says and does what he does. And that it is never about him. He is, the, he is not self-focused, ever. He does not feel sorry for himself. Who is he? He's omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God in the flesh. He doesn't feel sorry for himself. He doesn't complain. Psalm 22.1 is a complaint. He doesn't accuse God's character. You've forsaken me. You don't listen to me. You don't help me. He'd never say that. He's God himself. Okay. <clears throat> Once you get that, then again, what he's doing and what he's about on the cross suddenly appears for you. And I told you a few lectures back that Jesus Christ is always teaching, and Jesus Christ is always saving in his first coming. With every utterance from the cross, every one of the seven sayings, he is saving somebody, so it's incumbent upon us to try to figure out who is the... Now listen, he's saving all kinds of people in every direction. But he usually has, when he's on the cross, he has somebody specific. So find out who the specific person is and then find out how the rest are saved by it. That kind of uh, by proxy, if you will, by by uh, extension. That would be the better word. So ask with each of the seven sayings, ask who is he directing it to? Who is he trying to save with Psalm 22.1? Because somebody at the cross he's trying to save. It's directed to somebody. Who is it? Is it the Pharisees? You got Matthew 23 if you think it's the Pharisees. Does he say Pharisees? Yes. Nicodemus. Paul. 
But whom, to, uh, who, whom did he save with Psalm 22.1? Ask as well, who refused it? Who rejected Christ's call to be saved? And this takes us back to last week to the many of Isaiah 53.11 and 53.12. God says that, uh, that Christ will save many. And that's a powerful, solemn word there. Many. Christ will save many. Obvious question becomes, how many? And then the next question, who is not in the many? That, by the way, takes you to Gethsemane in the cup. Why he said, let this cup pass. He's, he's saving and he's teaching constantly. He's not thinking ever about himself. Self-focus is a, a, not an attribute of God. Anyway, for today, note that Jesus Christ, the Lord God Almighty, that's what he calls himself, the Lord God Almighty, Revelation 1.8, Revelation 3.8, saved the second thief. The first thief died after essentially uttering, died with the words of blasphemy in his mouth, essentially. So I have one lost and one saved. Christ said, today you will be with me. Pointed to the second thief, if you will, if he could have. And he could have, because he's God. He could have taken his hand out, pointed, put his hand back. You will be with me. So he saved the second thief. I want you to remember that. The Lord God Almighty saved the Roman execution detail with, Father, forgive them. If God says, Father, forgive them, Father forgives them. Because they are one and uh, one, they are triune. And here is my, my favorite, because I always pick the ones that are the least discussed. Woman, behold your, and here's the mistake, you'll find it, your translation, son. Notice how I write it. Did not write it. He is not referring to himself. He tells you who he's referring to in the very next word. What's he say? John, behold your mother. Just like I asked you, who did he save? With my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, I just asked you, who did he save when he said, Father, forgive them? Who did he save when he said, today you will be with me in paradise? Who is he saving when he says, woman, behold your son? John, behold your mother. Who's he directing it to? How is it saving them? Because that's what he does. Who is saved by these words? Again, figure out the subjects of those words. Christ's third saint. It's his third saint from the cross. Some will say second, but I have the third position and it doesn't matter. You all, we all get to seven. The order isn't, uh, don't quibble over the order, though people like me do. Clearly, the subjects in that sentence are John and Mary. Now, these are the important words right here. Whenever God says, behold, he is about to give you an amazing treasure. There is something coming. As soon as he says it, 
at whatever comes after this is so important that you have to stop and stare at it. Can I figure this out? It's a great, great mystery or a great truth, probably a better word. Woman, so I'll read it the way it should be read. Woman, behold! Here comes the important word. Your son. It's very important. What does it mean? John, behold! Your mother. Very important word. Subjects are John, the beloved apostle, and Mary, his mother. Christ assigns John to Mary as her son, and Mary to John as his mother. That's what he's doing. It's important to be aware of who else was there at the crucifixion. Next to Mary, who else was there? Do you know, do you know, do you know? John's real mother. She's standing right there. So, put yourself in the position. You're standing in front of Mary's son. He's on the cross. And he says, this is your new son. This is your new mother. And you're the mother. What did he mean? Matthew 27, 55, 56 tells you that uh, John's mother was at that crucifixion and heard those words. And none of Mary's other children were there. None. Where were they? We're talking about very important people, ultimately. People that wrote scripture. Where were they? It's uh, How many were there? It's also equally critically important to remember that the Apostle John's singular purpose, and this is in the Gospel of John, woman, behold your son, John, behold your mother. He wrote that to do one thing. What was it that he was trying to do in his Gospel? He selected out the things that were so extraordinary that Christ did. Out of the thousands and thousands and thousands of healings and limbs, Christ regrew limbs on people. Because of course he can. He's the creator himself. He made, he, he replaced eyes that were gouged out in military situations, uh, tortures, if you will. He, he restored bodies. He raised dead people. And John selected out the very ones. He said, okay, there's so many of them. John 21, 24 through 25. But I'm going to give you, in my gospel, I'm going to give you the ones that are the most incredible. The events that I'm going to list you, and I'm going to put them in a particular order. The order is very critical. I'm going to put them in an order, a pattern, as a matter of fact. It's a Passover pattern. That's how he wrote the book of Revelation. The same way, on the same Passover pattern. That's why the 153 fish are so important that no one seems to ever figure out. It's a Passover pattern. It's not that hard. Okay, it is hard. But John said, I'm going to give you the events that contain the most hidden, mysterious, incredible, deeply complex truth, secrets of God, whatever words you want to use. He wanted to tell us about the ones that were unbelievable once you understood what they really were. And what do we do when we read them? We just go, oh, that's not the page. He gave you seven that were unimaginable. The ones that prove 
one thing beyond any doubt. What is it that he was trying to do in the Gospel of John? His singular purpose. I have got to get you to understand this. That's all John is doing. What is it that he wanted you to understand? That's right. He wanted to prove that Jesus Christ is the Lord God Almighty. The Word made flesh, John 1, 1 through 3, and Revelation 1, 8 and 3, 8. That's all he wanted you to get. Because if you don't get that, you're doomed. And he knew it. Got to understand it. None of the Bible will make any sense to you. You'll get almost all of it wrong if you don't start out with Jesus Christ is the Lord God Almighty. And John, he devoted himself to that. That's what all of his writings are about. First, second, third, John, Revelation, Gospel of John. You've got to get this. So somehow, woman, behold your son. John, behold your mother. Proves Jesus Christ is God. And also save somebody. So it's up to us to figure out why the Holy Spirit used John and the way he did and what was chosen that Christ did out of the probably hundreds of thousands of things that he did. John picked out seven. Some will say eight, by the way, some theologians, but most agree that it's seven. So I have two beholds and I have mother and a son. What, how do they prove Christ is God? What have you been taught your whole life they do? I'll help you. Most people insist, most of the teaching community in the contemporary church for sure, and you can find it goes back even more than that, you know, maybe a hundred years or, most, or more, but most insist that Christ is, while he's saying this, uh, he's concerned. He's concerned about Mary's financial well-being. Can it be that Jesus Christ, who is he again? The Lord God Almighty. This proves it. Behold your son, behold your mother. Proves it somehow. Can it be that Christ was assigning John to care for Mary since Christ was being executed? This is what, what you'll learn from the people who think this way, that Christ is being executed and therefore would not be able to provide for Mary as she aged. That the whole purpose of this is to care for his aging mother since he was going to be executed. He's not able to do it anymore. Just think about that sentence. Christ is not able. You're in theological, not thin ice, doesn't describe it. You're, you're drowning. The ice broke a long time ago. When you start, Christ is not, you're already in real trouble. You add the word able to it, you're, I can't, uh, they're in a rope long enough to get it, get you. Believe it or not, this though is the view that you will find in literally every commentary. Uh, listen, I got them all. I challenge you to go find one that doesn't have it. The, the commentators are unanimous here, and here's a, almost a quote. Christ as the breadwinner of his family, was concerned for his mother's retirement. That's why he said, woman, behold your son, and John, behold your mother. That's out of this commentary that I brought. I have a commentary, and I have this particular translation because it's a, a commentary Bible, because it's in large, giant print. I need that now. I have 
I have quadrifogals. I have trifogals and then this, this one. Quadrifogal, fogal. And that's, that's why I got it. But I read essentially what the, the author of the, of the commentary wrote. Christ is the breadwinner of his family, was concerned for his mother's retirement. Really. That's the best they can do. The third saying of God, from his cross, during his crucifixion, in the midst of his sacrificial atonement for sin, in the midst of his forgiving of sin, which, by the way, he says, what, which is harder, raising somebody from the dead or forgiving sin? His third saying, with two beholds in it, is about money. Does that make sense to you? It can't be the, the case. This is God on the cross. He says so, Zechariah 12.10. He can create what out of nothing? Everything. Can he make money? He would be the world's greatest printing press. He can make gold coins out of nothing. Is he concerned about her retirement? He will resurrect himself in, after three days and three nights. That's the sign of Jonah. Is he worried about her financial retirement? He could give his mother enough wine, enough fish, enough bread, enough speckled, spotted, striped sheep to last for eternity. He's the creator of all things and the possessor of all things. Is money on his mind? Can't be. He's the resurrection and the life. His death has no power over him. He is not worried about his death either. How is it that we will think? Because why do we say he's worried about money? Who, who would possibly think that that's a good idea? It's us. We do it. Why? Because we're worried about money. I have no money in either pocket. Do you know why? Because I will play with it during the lecture if I have it. Lori knows it, so she empties my pockets. She's been emptying my pockets now for many, many years. And I have learned not to care about that. I used to say, you want to be an elder in this church, you have to have a dog that will run out of your house into traffic, and you have to have a wife who will take all your money. Then you're ready to be an elder, because you'll understand the nature of humanity really fast. And I should have stuck with that. I started out as a joke. Now I more firmly believe it. And there's nothing that teaches you more about people than chasing your dog as it's running into a, a, a dangerous situation. But he's the, the resurrection and the life. Death has no power on him, none, nil, zero impact on him. He doesn't think about money. He doesn't even, he's no concern with death. He's omnipotent God. He lays his, his life down. He takes it up again whenever he wants. John 10, 18, he does it at will. And he makes sure that you know that. This third saying proves he is who he says he is and it saves somebody. Someone or someones. Just like another one saves somebody, someone, I'll help you with it. I thirst. Is he thirsty? The way you and I are thirsty. He could say, I hunger. Is he hungry the way you and... He can make bread out of the air. He can make pizza. Is he hungry? The way you and I are hungry. Do not put our imperfect sinful humanity on him. He does not have any sin. 
He's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God. So who is he saying when he says, or who is he saving when he says, I thirst? Somebody heard him. Somebody was listening. Just like today, you will be in paradise. Who was the subject of I thirst? Who is the subject of woman, behold your son, John, behold your mother? Just as my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saving somebody. He's, is, that one's the, probably the easiest one of all of them. Besides that, today you will be with me in paradise. I would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The, that's the first verse of the song entitled The Hind of the Morning. Clearly, he is saving the hind of the morning. And the hind of the morning is at the crucifixion. And by the way, when he saved the hind of the morning, and he did, the Bible records that the hind of the morning was saved. You can find it. It's not that hard. I'll help you. I will not help the internet. They will send me emails now. I will tell them there's some small benefit of coming here. Besides pumpkin rolls. And Matt usually brings brisket. There's another one. I gave an answer. That'll make Sharon in Texas very unhappy. Hi, Sharon. He saved the hind. And, and the Bible records that he saved them. They got it immediately. They are at the cross and they went, oh my goodness, he is talking to us. We're the ones who say this. We're the ones who say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We say it all the time. We have been saying it for years. They say it today. They said it during World War II. They said it during the Russian or the Spanish Inquisition. They said it when Stalin was killing them by the millions. They said it, they, they have been saying it for thousands of years and they said it or thought it. And he quotes it for them. He takes the words that they are thinking. It's almost identical to what he writes in the sand when he has the woman brought before him that the Pharisees want to kill. He knows your thoughts. That's Elisha. He knows your thoughts. He knows what you have said. And he quotes it right to them. And the hind are saved, some of them. And, and the hind are identified. Who else is identified? By the way, back we are now here. First Kings 13. He identifies people. He identifies who is saved. He also identified who is not. He identified, by the way, the offspring of the one that devours the hind. He did it simultaneously by quoting Psalm 22.1. He used Psalm 22.1 to separate, if you will want to think of it this way, the wheat from the chaff. Because that's what he does. And immediately, the hindmost were separated from the Amalekites. You have to go to Exodus to find that reference, but you should. Something that you need to know. God did not come to earth to bring peace on earth. Christ says, I did not come to earth to bring peace. First Advent, Matthew 11:34. Jesus Christ came to save and forgive sin. Whomever confesses Christ will be confessed by Christ. Whomever denies Christ will be denied by Christ. Matthew 11, 32 through 33. 
Christ is doing this very thing from the cross. Every single saying. He is separating the ones that will pick up the axe head and the ones that will not. He is separating the one that will drink from the cup, eat the bread, and those who will not. That's what he's doing. And all of that gets us back to the unnamed man of God at 1 Kings 13, uh, where we left off last Sunday. I was blasting away last week, as you may have noticed, attempting to get as much into the Internet record as possible. When I usually do that, that's all I ever really accomplish. So today I'm going to go back over it and ask some more questions, slow down a little bit. I would like to reread it. I barely have time to do that. I'll reread a little bit of it. So go to 1 Kings 13. And I'll pick and choose some of these verses out. It's probably still in your bulletin, is it? If you do not have, yes, the collector's edition bulletin, it is in there. If you, if you save 1500 bulletins, which is, that means you've come for 1500 Sundays. If you save 1500 bulletins, you can redeem them for another bulletin. So be aware of that. <laughs> Someday they will be collector's items. No, that's not the case. We're gonna, I'm gonna pick some verses out. First Kings 13. I'm gonna start here at 7. Then the king said to the man of God, come home with me. So this is the king that got his, his arm withered that is trying to kill the man of God. He says, so the king, then the king said to the man of God, come home with me and refresh yourself and I will give you a prize. You'll get a reward. But the man of God said to the king, if you were to give me your kingdom, essentially half your house, I would not go with and with you, nor would I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For So it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, you shall not eat bread nor drink water nor return by the same way you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. Now an old prophet dwelt in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel, where the man of God, I'll recap, blew up the altar there and withered the hand of Jeroboam the king and told him they were all going to be killed in 300 years by a guy named Josiah. They also told their father the words which the man of God had spoken to the king about he won't eat, he won't drink, and he won't go back the same way he came. And the father said to them, which way did he go? For his sons had seen which way the man of God went, who came from Judah. Then he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he rode on it. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak tree. Then he said to him, are you the man of God? And he said, I am. They began to see, ooh, we have very interesting language there. Are you the man of God who came from Judah? I am. The am is in italics, but I think it's implied. (coughs) Then he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. And the man of God said, I cannot return with you, nor go in with you. Neither can I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For I've been told by the word of the Lord. YHBH, the Tetragrammaton, the unpronounceable, ineffable name of God. That's the triune God right there when you see the Lord capitalized like that. I, let's see, where am I? 
I've been told by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat bread nor drink water nor return by going the way you came. The old prophet said to the man of God, I'm adding that to make it so it's easier to figure out who's who here. I am also a prophet, as you are, really. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, bring him back with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. He was lying. Duh. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. Now it happened as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet uh, who had brought him back. And he cried out to the man of God who came from Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord, have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but you came back, ate bread, and drank water in the place which the Lord said to you, Eat no bread, drink no water. Your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your father. So it was after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk that he saddled the donkey for him, the prophet whom he had brought back. Then it goes on to say he was killed by a lion, and the lion guarded the body along with the donkey. The donkey and the lion side by side, if you were here last week, guarded the body. People went back and forth. The lion didn't touch the body, didn't touch the donkey, and didn't attack anybody that came near him, unless they went for the corpse. Then you can be sure the lion made sure they didn't get the corpse. And inside the donkey and the lion, of course, you see the lion of Judah, the king element of Christ. He has three offices, doesn't he? His first office is prophet. His second office is high priest. His third office is king. He has fulfilled his prophet office. He's now in his high priest office. He will come as king. And so you see two of those offices, if you will, two advents, the prophet office and the king office there in the donkey and the lion. Okay, now let's sift through this some more. This commandment from God with its three parts cannot be overemphasized. No room on the board now. Eat no bread. Drink no water. Don't return by the same way you came. Those are the three things, three parts to it. So start asking, why those three? The first one is eat and drink. What's this returning by the different way thing? What's all about that? that? Does that make sense that those three would be together? Of course it does. God did it and he's omniscient. Again, the unnamed man of God, we have to figure out how it makes sense. The unnamed man of God is clearly a type of Jesus Christ. He's called the man of God. The God-man, if you will. Clearly, He's a type of Christ. So first we find where in the New Testament, if I have a man that eats no bread and drinks no water and doesn't return the same way in the Old Testament, then Christ will have the same characteristics somewhere in the New Testament. There's a place where he will eat no bread, he will drink no water, and he won't return the same way he came. Where's that? I'll have something to drink while you wait. Because you've got to have it. Every Old Testament question has a New Testament answer, and so does every New Testament question have an Old Testament answer. I'll help you out. We find somewhere in the New Testament that Jesus Christ ate no bread, drank no water, nor returned by the same way he came, and also turned down an invitation from an evil king. Where's that? Somewhere in the New Testament, the God-man, Jesus Christ, God-man, Jesus God, 
rejects an offer of a reward. Rejects the offer of a kingdom from an evil king. Where? Where am I? Yeah, I'm in Matthew 4, aren't I? I'm in Matthew 4 once again. There we are. That's why it's on the board. I'm at Matthew 4. I'm at Mark 1, 12. I'm at Luke 4, 1 through 4. 1 Kings 13 connects immediately to Matthew 4 and Mark and Luke. I have the same story. I'm going to give you my kingdom if you will what? Eat with me. He doesn't say that. He says worship. But you will make yourself subject to me. I'll give you my kingdom. He's talking to God. I'm God. God already owns the kingdom. You have a lease agreement. God has the deeds. You have a a use permit would be a better way to put it. You don't own the property. He owns it. You don't own anything. I don't own anything. We used to have a joke when I was young and going to what called itself a seminary. I won't identify what it was, but I went for a while until I realized, okay, this isn't right, and I left. But we had a joke there that if you don't think uh, God owns everything, then love something a lot and see what he does with it. Whether it be your car, or your motorcycle, or your favorite shirt, you, you, First thing you're going to do is, if you get crazy in love with stuff, then and you're going to go into the ministry, he's got to teach you a lesson. And that was our joke. So, you want to love that shirt a lot? He's going to make sure somebody dumps ketchup and mustard on it simultaneously. Your motorcycle engine is going to throw a rod right through the, through the case. Anyway. Christ is not interested in a reward. His, the only thing that he is interested in is what? Yes, he's interested in souls, saving people. It's why he says what he says and does what he does. There's no exception on the cross. It's why he says what he says in Gethsemane. Start thinking that way and you'll, these things will open up for you. Okay, Christ is in a barren desert, accompanied, by the way, Mark says this, 113. Only the wild animals or the wild beasts are with him. There's no people with him. He's in a barren desert. It's hot. There's what? Why do we call it a desert? There's no water and there's no food, right? He's in a barren desert. He's accompanied only by wild animals. There's no food, no water. He's there 40 days. And keep in mind that Christ is the rock from which the living water flows out of Exodus 17. And Christ is likewise the bread, bread of life, John 6.35. So obviously, um, we are to eat the bread of life and drink the living water. So start putting that together. And obviously, the contrast would be what? If I have a bread of life and I have living water, then I must have the bread of death and I must have poisoned water. Now you're back to... First Kings, don't eat the bread of death, don't drink the poisoned water, and get out of here. And go a different way back. Don't take the poison. What's that? Don't eat the poison. Where am I? Right here. Genesis 2.17. Christ 
would not, cannot take the poison. Satan could not give Christ a reward that he would take. That's silly. He can't fool him into doing it. And so when you go to read 1 Kings 13, start making the application. Did Jeroboam give the man of God a a reward that he would even consider? No. Could he possibly fool him into taking it? No. Christ, is, again, does not seek rewards. He doesn't want any what? He doesn't want any money. Now, here you are here. This can't be about money or rewards. It can't be. John, behold your mother. Woman, behold your son. He calls her woman, by the way. That's the key to the whole thing. Once you figure out why he calls her woman, then you can solve that a lot faster. Threw that in just for fun. Christ does not hunger for bread and he does not thirst for water. He hungers for the lost and he thirsts for the unsaved. So when he says, I thirst, which is this one here, now you solve that by understanding why he says it and what he means. I had a professor one time say to me, Chronister, if Christ stood in front of you and said, I'm thirsty, you would be so dumb you'd go get him a glass of water. And I went, wow, he's right. Because I wouldn't understand what he meant. I'm hungry. I go get him a peanut butter sandwich. It's not what he's saying. He's 40 days in the desert without any food or water. What kind of physical condition he's in? He's God. Okay? Don't anthropomorphize our imperfect sinful humanity on his perfect Humanity and his godhood. Okay. Let's try to solve this. uh, Do not return the same way. Return a different way. Do not return the same way you came. So now we know that Christ must not return the same way he came. So, how did he come? What does it mean? Is it incarnation, ascension, or is it first and second comings, or first and second advent, same word? Which is it? Does that make sense to anybody but me? Kind of? He comes once, and then he comes again. Two comings. He also comes in the prophet, and then at the end of his prophet phase, if you will, or office, he returns from where he came from. So which one is it most likely do not return the same way you came, referring to when it comes to Christ? I think the case is strongest for incarnation and ascension. The strongest case, I believe, uh, is that one. See, the unnamed prophet announces that to the announces the coming king. He says, Josiah is coming. Where is Josiah? Right here. Josiah is coming in three hundred years, and he's going to tear as king. So the unnamed prophet is telling you, I'm the prophet, but a king is coming. So he announces the coming king who judges the followers of the withered hand one, Jeroboam, or Antichrist, Zechariah 11.17. Is that on the board anywhere? Zechariah, yeah, right here. The withered hand one teaches you that Christ will identify the Antichrist or the one with the withered hand. And Christ does in the New Testament over and over and over again. 
Again, the unnamed prophet announces the coming king, Josiah, 290 years, who will judge the followers of the withered hand one, and then the prophet returns to where from he came. The prophet phase is now going to be over, and the high high priest phase would then begin if, if I applied it to Christ. But now I have this old line, old prophet thing that's coming into play now. And he's residing in the place of great evil. And he wasn't talked to by an angel. Who talked to him? His own kids. It's not an angel, but his own sons. His own sons told him that the man of God showed up and blew up the altar, scattered the pagans, cleansed the place, prophesied about the Josiah coming in 290 years, and wiped out the hand of the king. And identified him as a picture of the Antichrist, which is what Zechariah 11:17 said. So we know something about the Antichrist. Uh, he'll have a withered hand versus the strong arm, if you will. It could be a symbol. It could be actual. We'll find out. Okay. And the lying old prophet chases after the unnamed man of God and attempts to get him to do what? Come back and eat the poison and drink the the. And drink the, eat and drink poison. And by the way, what's that? It's a reward. That's how he says it, isn't it? Come home with me and eat bread. Bring him back to your house that he may eat bread. Drink water. Come back to me. It's the same thing as Jeroboam. And notice again, That question that he asked, are you the man of God from Judah? See, that's exactly what I would say to Christ. Are you the God-man from Judah? It could have easily have been that. Are you the God-man, the lion of Judah? I am. So just notice that language. Then verse 15, which I'm going to reword it. Come with me and die. It's what he says to him. Come with me and eat poison and die. And the man of God says definitively to him, the YHVH has commanded me personally, eat no poison, drink no poison, don't come the same way you came. Don't return the same way you came. And the old prophet then says, my sons, oops, an angel spoke to me saying, bring him back and kill him. Would any angel ever say, bring him back and kill him? And see, that's puzzling in the sense that the old prophet went with a clear and absurd lie that couldn't have possibly fooled the man of God and did not, 1 Timothy 2.14. Elijah, 2 Kings 1-7, through chapters 1-7. through There's no possibility that the man of God was fooled by this. Said that last week, can't say it strong enough. This, it's the Jennifer from Arizona question, right? Why didn't God warn the unnamed prophet that, that this guy or the old prophet is going to come and try to kill him? Why didn't he warn Adam that Satan was going to come and try to kill him? Why didn't he warn? Why didn't God warn? Sorry, Jennifer. I don't mean to make fun of you. That's a fake sorry. I'm making fun of her. The reason is, is they weren't deceived. Adam wasn't deceived. The unnamed prophet wasn't deceived. Elisha's not deceived. Christ's not deceived. Never have any of them deceived or you'll, you'll flounder on these things. The unnamed prophet, Adam, Elisha connected Jesus Christ. 
to Matthew 4, Mark 1, Luke 4. Moving along, the lying prophet proposes this ridiculous, the angel told me, in contrast to what the prophet has. The old prophet says, an angel told me. The man of God prophet says, God himself told me. That's the contrast. The tetragrammaton, the triune Godhead, the YHVHWH, whichever you prefer. That isn't just ridiculous. It cannot, it had no hope of succeeding. If, if, just imagine, God comes to you himself. Jesus Christ shows up, that would be cool, in your bedroom at night and says, it's me, Christ. Don't eat any bread, don't drink any water, and get out of here. And Fred comes in a half hour later and says, an angel told me to, you're supposed to come with me and eat some bread and have some water and stay at my place. I mean, how could that possibly succeed? You have God himself versus who? Fred with a story about an angel. It's absurd. It can't possibly work. It didn't work. That's the key to understanding the whole story. Think of it this way. A five-star general uh, gives you an order or you get an order from a brand new Cub Scout. It's two years old or three years old, whatever Cub Scouts are now, if they even exist. That doesn't even begin to, to, to show you the disparity in the contrast. But anyway, it seems to work. It didn't work, but he goes back. Knowing he's going to die... He's going to go back to, with this old prophet. And I answered that question last week. Why does he go back with the old prophet? Because ultimately the old prophet is saved by him doing so. The death of the unnamed prophet results in the salvation and the life and the resurrection of the old prophet. We'll finish that next week. The old prophet is saved. That's what God does. Man trying to kill him. He, ta- he saves the guy that's trying to kill him. Who's that? That's what Christ does. Now, I'm going to fix this question. I didn't do it last week because I, I, I didn't want to confuse you. This week, I want to confuse you. Does that ever happen? <laughs> Bonnie about fell over in the front row. Now, I'm going to read verse 20, and I'm going to read verse 23. They're the same verse in the sense that they have the same phrase in them. But your Bible will not have it that way. I'm going to read it wrong. I have it corrected, uh, and I have to really kind of struggle with it, because every time I go over it, I have to intentionally read it wrong in order for you to hear the wrong side. Now it happened, as they sat at the table, that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried out to the man of God who came from Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you. But you came back. Okay, got that? Now I'm going to go to 23. But so it was after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk that he saddled the donkey for him, the prophet whom he had brought back. Whom he had brought back and whom he had brought back is in 20 and is in 23. It's the same Hebrew words. Okay? 
That's the key. When you read it, you realize that however it is translated in 23, it must also be the same in verse 20. My verse 20 says, who had brought him back? Verse 23, whom he had brought back. It is identical, the same words. What is correct? One of those is wrong if your Bible has it that way, and one of them is right. I will tell you that 23 is right. Whom he had brought back. Who is the he in the sentence? Who brought the unknown prophet back? Was it the lying, absurd, ridiculous old prophet idea that brought him back? Let me reread it now, verse 20. Now it happened as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet whom he had brought back. Who's the, whom he had brought back referred to. I'll read it again. Now it came as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet whom he had brought back. Who's the he referred to? The Lord. Not the old prophet. And he cried out. Who cried out? The Lord or the old prophet? See, if you read it, as I think you will, I'll read it this way. Now it happened as they, the old prophet and the unnamed prophet, sat at the table. God came. And God cried out to his Prophet, the man of God, the unnamed prophet. Thus says me, because you have destroyed or disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but you came back. So I'm proposing to you that the old prophet does not prophesy. I'm proposing to you that the Hebrew is telling you that while these two guys were sitting at the table, God came and said, to the unnamed prophet, because you came back, you're going to sacrifice your life. Which, by the way, the unnamed prophet already knew. You can imagine the old prophet sitting there, eating, thinking his lie has worked, finding out that it did not, and God himself came. And told the unnamed prophet, you're going to die now because you came back with this man knowing full well that you were going to die and knowing full well that he lied to you. That is a key element to the story because that does what? Teaches you about who? Teaches you about what happened where? On the cross. Next week, we'll... Beat that around a little bit more and I'll pound it in. And yes, there really is a next week, but pay attention to two things. There will be no services, this for the internet as well. There will be no lectures on the 22nd and the 29th in all likelihood. And this is for the people here. There is no pumpkin bread back there at all. So don't even, don't even consider it. Let's rise and beat as many.